welcome to the second episode of Wise Women in Waste podcast series with me, Debbie Hitchin, Director of Sustainable Production and Consumption at Anthesis, and Claudia Amos, Technical Director of Circularity, Resource Efficiency and Waste at Anthesis. If you joined us for our first podcast, you'll know that we're co-hosting a short series of informal discussions and conversations to explore trends and opportunities in our sector. We're inviting women who've inspired us and shared our career journeys to talk about our passions of the work that we do and provide some industry insights and knowledge along the way. Today, we're delighted to be joined by our fellow Anthesian, Simone Applin, who's Technical Director for Circularity, Waste Data and Waste Crime. Which leads me to my first question, Simone. Waste Crime is an unusual title. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into your current role and what you do? Yeah, so the Waste Crime, not undertaken by me personally obviously came about a bit later more recently in my career but I've I've been in preparation for this podcast thinking about how I got to this point and how I ended up doing this job and the things that I've been supporting people with and I've worked out that it's been 25 years since I started in the waste sector so that was a bit of an eye-opener for me but I've enjoyed every minute of it to be honest I've had a strange well varied career path to get to this point and uh, I was lucky enough that I started in, in the actual waste sector itself. So I started working for what used to be called a Lordax, so an arm's length company that was owned by the local authority, but operated as a separate company and operated a whole range of waste management sites in Worcestershire, Herefordshire and Worcestershire. So I was an environmental scientist when I started and was working on a landfill, which was great fun. And then kind of progressed over the next few years and was one of the first women to get a certificate of technical competence for hazardous waste landfill. So that really got me absolutely hooked into the waste sector and I got to understand how these sites operate. We had lots of civic amenity sites. We had transfer stations, open windrow composting, MRFs as well. So it was a really good initiation into the waste sector and not just kind of how it worked technically, but also how it worked commercially. So that was my first kind of five or six years, I think. Then I did a complete switch and moved from the waste sector to actually to the environment agency where I was regulating the waste sector. And I started off being a site officer. So I was looking at inspecting sites, make sure they were compliant with their permit, which was a bit of an eye opener because I'd only ever looked at our permit (laughs) and uh, was trying to make sure we were compliant with that. So to see what other operators did and how they worked was a real blessing for some of the stuff that I've done later on in my career, particularly the expert witness and the waste crime. So I spent 10 years in the Environment Agency doing frontline regulation and enforcement. I touched on producer responsibility, which I enjoyed immensely. That was a really new thing at the time. It was when the packaging regulations first came in. So they were very complicated. A lot of people struggled with the complexity of them, but we helped people through that journey and eventually got to the stage where it was in the public interest to prosecute free riders. So did a bit of that and kind of led the work in the region to do that because it was quite a complex thing to do. You had to learn, learn a lot about company law, but managed to get one of the biggest fines that we'd ever had, £96,000. I'll always remember that one. So that was a really worthwhile thing to do. And then I moved on to something which is more related to what I do day to day now, which is looking at waste strategy in the East and West Midlands, 
helping local authorities, developing waste plans, understanding what infrastructure is needed, what evidence people need, what data we're collecting, where it's coming from, what it means, importantly. And that kind of real baptism of fire into waste data, as it were, has, has really carried me forward in my career. So from the Environment Agency, after 10 years, I went into consultancy. And at the start, it was quite a difficult thing to do because you think, well, I've learned all this knowledge from my time in operations and my time at the regulator. And you're trading on that knowledge in consultancy because that's what you're selling to people as a service. And I worried, was I going to be able to continue to do that as my knowledge kind of got out of date? But as you will know, consultancy is absolutely fantastic for learning on the job. So it just got stuck straight in there. And the range of projects that I've worked on has been absolutely fantastic. On a personal level, that was a bit of a jump, talking from the female perspective, because at the time I had a very young child and I was having to kind of make this jump from the regulator where there's flexible hours and quite a relaxed attitude to flexibility, to having to drive 50 miles a day to my work, be in an office nine to five. And I was really, really lucky that on the call today was my <laughs> the lady who was my manager at the time, Claudia. And the fact that you had a young child, didn't you, as well at the same time? Absolutely. <laughs> so you can appreciate the tired eyes and the sometimes when I arrived looking a bit frazzled. And, and that really helped having a female manager that understood exactly the, you know, the, the, the home life challenges as well as the work life challenges really helped me to make that transition. And I think I might have struggled a bit in the first few months, but it's been nothing but a pleasure and really interesting. So I think I've been in consultancy now for about, oh, I don't know, definitely over 10 years. <laughs> and um, I really, really kind of not look back. No, definitely. And I think also the team we were both in was just really supportive. Now we had a couple of young dads in there. Yeah. So I think that just felt right. And everybody had a really good joint understanding about the challenges of the job and, and really high pressured consultancy and delivery and everything. But also, as you said, the, the tired eyes, the slight grumpiness, and just that, that there was a lot happening in the background. And, and what I really loved when I got you on board the first time is really this operational background, because sometimes I feel that there's not enough of that in consultancy. So I really love that you yeah, really went to the ground, school of hard knocks, on the landfill side, on the MERVs. It's a, it's a different kind of people working there. They got a lot of hands-on knowledge, and I think that's always appreciated if you understand what those guys do on a day-to-day -day basis and the skills they have. If you just think about the people like looking at a skip and being able to grade wood waste into three very kind of like elusive grading things, there's, there's lots of skills and then lots of stuff that's actually really important also for our ongoing work to understand that and for the consultancy work. But I think it would be really interesting to see or to understand why you made this decision to to do the kind of like on the job operational side first and, and not maybe look at consultancy like a lot of people do now. And that's why we employ a lot of the, the graduates and, and postgraduates directly into consultancy. Yeah, that's a funny one. I think that the totally honest answer is that I didn't really know it was available. At university, the waste modules really grabbed my attention. I don't know why, but I remember always doing a, a module on gasification and pyrolysis and just thinking, this just sounds fantastic. And they never really gave it a second thought. 
And then when I came out of university, I did a year with Seven Trent as a microbiologist and really enjoyed that, but it was a temporary post. And <laughs> the thing that got me into waste, totally random, like I, I expect many people do, a, a relative found a, an advertisement for the job in a free paper in our local town. So I applied for the job and I got it and the rest is history. And when I mentioned at the time, you know, what I did for a living, I could see people actively move away from me. And my family used to call me Stig of the Dump because people think that it's a dirty job. It's unpleasant. It's not for women, not something you choose to do. I would say it's not like that at all. It's absolutely fascinating. What people throw away is absolutely fascinating. <laughs> and we had plenty of people who threw away things that they, they didn't think they did, like travel tickets and wedding photographs and £3,000 somebody put in a skip once and we used to go through it and find it out. But it was a lovely environment to get that breadth of expertise. And it's it's stood me in so much stead because there's not a day go by that I I don't look back and relate what I'm trying to do back to what I know is how it works in practice and in, in reality. And that's particularly true with the expert witness stuff, but across the board, really. And learning how to work with different people and how to influence different people. And, and that was absolutely priceless. And I, and I got to do things I'd never normally do, like drive a JCV, which is absolutely fantastic. <laughs> That sounds very good. And I also love plants and everything. So that's, that's definitely something we got in common. The other thought what I had was kind of like, as you said, you were the one of the first women to get your technical certificate of competency, which is a really important milestone and also means that's basically needed to operate a site and you need to have people with that qualification on site, but also in terms of authority. So did you have any kind of like female counterparties, cause or on site or in the regulator, really that provided specific role models um, and also have this, yeah, this position of authority, which is, which is always a bit difficult for anybody. Yeah, no, true. When I started the landfill, I had no authority at all. So that wasn't really an issue. But what was an issue, it wasn't really, but it was a thing, um, was that I was the only woman on site. So quite a novelty. And basic things like there not being a female toilet, you know, they just hadn't catered for women. So that was a bit of a learning curve. But it was fine. I mucked in. I wanted to muck in. And I think people kind of came to respect me and they were very helpful. There was a couple of bottom pinching moments because I think at that time it was, unfortunately, that happened occasionally, but it was never, you know, never anything that wasn't dealt with swiftly. And it's very, very different now. I mean, there's women all the time in waste sites and it wouldn't happen at all, but it was a long time ago, as I mentioned before. I actually find now on a lot of sites, they proudly present, if you arrive, they're guessing, and these are the female toilets, which is kind of like such an advance and such a progress. It's absolutely sweet. And you really appreciate it when you go, especially to transfer sites and so on. That, that's a quite sweet effect. <laughs> yeah, always a joy. Yeah, I have learned when I go to on-site visits, remember to put your trousers on. <laughs> but yeah, the environment agency was completely different because, of course, there's a much more even gender balance. In that role, particularly the frontline role, where you're visiting sites and you're picking people up for potential non-compliance, being a woman then can sometimes be a more of a challenge. I mean, it's difficult because you don't ever know the counterfactual, but you're dealing with men on these sites who have 
operated like that for a long time and they see a young woman in inverted commas coming on their site they don't know your history or experience and I do remember one incident in particular where I took some photographs as evidence and presented the the operator with a code B notice as you would under the police and criminal evidence act say I'd taken some evidence and he objected to that quite strongly and went off like a firework and we ended up in a semi-hostage situation and I I wonder it wasn't serious (laughs) and I wonder whether people's reaction to me would have been different if I'd been a man than a woman but I'm not easily intimidated so I've never kind of let that bother me I've always just just carried on and as long as you're acting professionally then can't go far wrong really. Simone, what would you tell somebody coming into the career now at the start of their career as a woman trying to follow a similar career path? What sort of support or advice would you give them from the learnings that you've had? It's really difficult to think kind of where I would change things because it's been fantastic, really. But there is one thing that I would say to myself, if I could speak to myself a long time ago, which was to be more confident and even if you don't feel confident, just to fake it. (laughs) Because if you are confident or come across as confident, people react to you differently and they trust you. And I think that the mistake I've made in the past is not, and I've probably missed opportunities as a result, is not believing in myself. One example that describes it really is is when I worked at the landfill, there was a, a job going in the office, but it was more kind of across the sites and a bit more kind of engineering, a bit more technical. And I really, really wanted that job. <laughs> and I was thinking, well, can I do it? Can I not? And I've always had this feeling, well, that's their remit. Unless I get invited into the team, unless somebody tells me you should apply for that job, Simone, I always step back, fearing that they'll think I'm getting above myself. And what is she doing wanting to get involved in this? Or that's ridiculous. Why is she applying for this job? And so I didn't do it. And I really wish now, knowing what I know, I'd have done that. Because actually, you need to go and fight for opportunities. And you are good enough. If you don't apply, you never find out. So there has been times in the past where I've I've thought, oh, I don't want people to think that I'm getting above my station. And I should have just been that off and gone for it, really. I think that's a really interesting experience to share with us. And thank you, because it's it's quite a personal one. But I think what's really interesting is uh, that it's still now relevant to women coming into our sector. I was talking to our lead for DEI just last week about the difference between female and male confidence and, and behaviour. And he was telling me that there is a statistic that suggests that women will look at a job description and see 10 things and think there's one thing I can't do on that, so I shouldn't apply very much like you're describing, waiting maybe for somebody to invite them. And our male counterparts will look at that list and say, there might be a handful of things on there I can do and a handful I can't, but I can I have the confidence to talk to the things I can't do and I will put myself forward. And I think I've done a lot of coaching and mentoring of female colleagues in the last couple of years. One of the things that I probably spend most time talking about in those sessions is the need for self-belief and confidence and how we show that confidence and how we generate that belief within ourselves that we are good and strong and and have the confidence without bragging or without displaying excessive ego to demonstrate to male and female colleagues that we are suitable for the post or you know in a position of authority and I think it's a fascinating area of psychology to explore how we as women can build that but how we can also take that into the roles that we do day to day to inspire new professionals coming into our sector. 
Yeah, I, I do. And I think I think to a certain extent that psychology also feeds into the gender pay gap. Because personally, I you know, I find it really difficult to say actually, or when you're negotiating salaries and things like that, you know, I'm worth this. <laughs> and because you're kind of waiting for someone to tell you you're worth it. And I think that's a contributing factor. Yeah, fight against it. You mentioned the expert witness work earlier, and I think that's really important because actually that is somebody approving, stamping your authority on legal decisions. So can you tell us a little bit more about your expert witness work? Yeah, sure. I I find this area of work absolutely fascinating and and really, really rewarding. For those of you listeners who don't know what expert witness is, it's basically a person who helps the court with technical understanding of the issues around a case. So you can't yourself say, I am an expert witness. It's up to the court and for the defence and the prosecution to say, yes, your skills and knowledge and experience is enough that you can give an opinion that we can base our judgment upon. So when you get into this work, for each case, really, depending on the topic or the particular issue within that case they want you to give an opinion on, you will need to give them examples of your skills and experience and everybody's got to agree we're confident that this person knows what they're doing. And if you're called to give evidence, there are often questions around your skills and experience at the start of that. So you've got to be pretty sure. So, yeah, that is a confidence builder. The role of an expert witness is to give an independent opinion to the court on different technical issues. And that independence is really interesting. So I'm normally commissioned by the defence, but you have to give independent, unbiased views. So that's how it works. And so you have to have a really high sense of honesty and integrity and make sure that your observations are factual and not deliberately favouring any party. So I get instructed by the defence solicitor most of the time and they will give you instructions which sets out what particular aspects they want you to look at. And then I just pour over all of the evidence. And that's the bit that I really enjoy because I can bring together my regulatory experience from the Environment Agency and my understanding of how they tend to operate, the things they kind of do, the viewpoints they have with my operational experience, which wasn't just a snapshot. You know, we've kept that going through all my consultancy work as well. So that's grown and bring those two things together into what is effectively the first stages of the independent report. Then you might get asked to give evidence in court, which is always slightly terrifying, but never as bad as you think it's going to be. And yeah, I find that a really worthwhile thing to do. You always feel like, again, (laughs) from my point of view, am I really the expert in this? But you can really add value to the cases. And it's amazing how much you can help the judge and everybody to really understand those technical issues. And you, you can get invited into a case at any point. So it might be before the trial, during the trial in the sentencing hearing to give comments on mitigation factors like environmental harm that's been committed. And then one that I've done quite a lot of is the proceeds of crime hearing. So after somebody has been convicted, the idea is that any financial gain they've made from that offence is clawed back, taken away from them. So a lot of things is, you know, how much money did they save while operating illegally and things like that. So, yeah, it's a really, really interesting area of work. Yeah, and I think your your knowledge and your expertise and your level-headedness is, is very much appreciated. That's why people employ you. And do you find there are a lot of female counterparts on the legal side or even the courts? Is that an even 
split or is that also more more male on the legal side? Because I know you're working for a number of female solicitors and barristers to, to get involved in the cases. Yeah, that's right. I don't know across the whole profession, but certainly there are two women that I work with quite a lot in this area that have been incredible role models for me and have helped me build my confidence in this area. And I've really gained a lot from them. One is there's kind of two barristers that specialise in this work and are real subject experts. And the one I work with is Sam Riggs from 25 Bedford Row. And she's been, she, she's just fantastic. She was shortlisted by Chambers and Partners this year as one of the leading environmental and planning juniors. So she is well recognised in the industry. And where she's helped me is she was the barrister for the first case where I was having to give evidence and so I was naturally quite nervous. I was clutching my box of evidence, you know, as I came up the steps. And barristers obviously have to be extremely careful that they don't coach you. They must not and cannot coach you with your answers. So it can be a very lonely position to be an expert witness because you have to really hold up that level of integrity. But Sam was really reassuring and you know, learning about the process because it is very intimidating thing to do. So I've been eternally grateful for her for that. And then Dr. Anna Willett, she's the other standout in this area, I think. She's partner at Gunner and Cook, and she will excitingly be the first vice president for CIWM this year. So CIWM Chartered Institute of Waste Management. But she's a fantastic example of a woman who is absolutely at the top of her field and recognised across the industry. So yeah, great role models. Yeah, and I think we're finding more and more wise women in waste, which is really exciting. So, <laughs> And I think that's great for us because we want to do this podcast with a series of different guest speakers and look at things from different lenses and different perspectives and understand the career opportunities that women have taken, the paths that they've taken, and how that opens and inspires opportunities for the next generation coming through. Simone, earlier when you introduced yourself, you were talking about some of the time that you spent at the Environment Agency. And I was wondering how you thought that the current opportunities for policy reform might sort of play in over the next 10 years. Do you have specific thoughts on what you think that might be the big issues in the decisive decade? Yeah, I mean, I think it started probably a couple of years ago with the publication of the Resources and Waste Strategy by DEFRA, which I think was a, a really pleasant surprise for everybody because it was much more comprehensive than we necessarily thought it might be. So we've had a kind of a, a bit of a dearth of policy before that. And then the strategy came out and it, it it's really covers an awful lot of things. So you've got extended producer responsibility in there. You've got stuff around consistent collections. You've got stuff around kind of infrastructure and then waste data, which is something that I'm very interested in. So it kind of set the scene, I think, for a lot of policy to come through and to make really fundamental changes to the way that we're collecting, treating and, and kind of using those resources. So that's really exciting. And then you've got other policies as well around you know, minimum recycled content in plastic bottles and things, which is suddenly starting to kind of get into everybody's consciousness I think and there's been a whole range of consultations as you know on, on all of these new regulations and, and the environment bill we, we're starting to see things happening I think companies moving to start to 
respond to these new regulations and their new duties and that's really exciting because I see actually things happening now people actually taking action on the ground and that includes things like manufacturers looking to secure more recycled products and I think you've had the same Claudia haven't you with your clients actually looking to source really quality raw materials from the industry or to prepare to make sure they've got infrastructure ready to actually deliver what we need for everybody because it was much more comprehensive than we necessarily thought it might be so we've had a, a bit of a dearth of policy before that and then the strategy came out and it, it it's really covers an awful lot of things so you've got extended producer responsibility in there you've got stuff around consistent collections you've got stuff around kind of infrastructure and then waste data which is something that I'm very interested in so it kind of set the scene, I think, for a lot of policy to come through and to make really fundamental changes to the way that we're collecting, treating and and kind of using those resources. So that's really exciting. And then you've got other policies as well around minimum recycled content in plastic bottles and things, which is suddenly starting to kind of get into everybody's consciousness, I think. And there's been a whole range of consultations, as you know, on on all of these new regulations and and the Environment Bill. And we're starting to see things happening. I think companies moving to start to respond to these new regulations and their new duties. And that's really exciting because I see actually things happening now, people actually taking action on the ground. And that includes things like manufacturers looking to secure more recycled products. And I think you've had the same, Claudia, haven't you, with your clients actually looking to source really quality raw materials from the industry or to prepare to make sure they've got infrastructure ready to actually deliver what we need. Absolutely. And I think what you just described for the UK is also mirrored worldwide. So what started with China sort policy and the sudden pressure that we need to have national infrastructure and we can't just export our way out of plastics in particular. Even in the US now with the new Biden administration, there is a plastic regulation, the circularity regulations up in front of the Senate and the Congress in due course. There's a lot of CO2 taxation so it's also looking at energy from waste so the uk has just published a consultation on looking at co2 impact of energy from waste plants old and new and really getting into heat and i think there's loads of other examples and for example just this morning there is or today there's a publication of a report showing that environmental risk is a key factor in people's decision making and that there has been an enormous shift towards sustainability to be integrated into GDP and other other calculations as well as short-term investments. Um, So I think that's, yeah, I think it's huge. And I've seen over the last 20 years a huge shift in in public perception and involvement and also how companies now react and deal with sustainability issues. I think the interesting thing from my perspective is related to the extended producer responsibility globally, how we're seeing a shift in the people who are involved in this sector. When I first started, waste was really a waste management company issue, perhaps with municipalities and local authorities globally playing a role because of their public health requirements under their 
policy. And what I've seen in, in the last 20 years or so is a significant shift in policy and regulation globally, which is moving that ownership further up the value chain. So what excites me is the opportunity for some of this stuff to create consistency. And I do appreciate that we're not there yet because we've got different jurisdictions bringing in different policies, firstly at different timelines, but also perhaps with less joined up goals and visions than, than they might have. But I'm excited by things like the circular economy package and the Green Deal that are coming from Europe, which create a degree of consistency amongst the European nations. And I'm also excited to see that in producer responsibility, UK and Europe are seen as leading flagships effectively for other jurisdictions. And so we see some consistency where those later adopters are looking to the more established policies to kind of roll out something that is similar. And I think that that's got to be a good thing for industry who are trying, particularly at the top end, maybe of the materials value chain, to understand and interpret that on a global basis that matches their manufacturing and distribution profiles. And I think that that's also supported and helped by things outside of the policy framework. You could credit the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, for example, with creating a unity which sits over the top of national or jurisdiction level policy, because it's driving behaviour at that global level. So if you are a producer of packaging or, or product, and you're signed up to those, you're introducing policies that are more consistent across the different marketplaces that you operate in. And so for me, I actually think that maybe there's an opportunity for some of these voluntary commitments to drive a greater degree of leadership in this space than some of the policy and regulation itself. I don't know if you see that also in, in the markets that you operate in. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the entrance and the, the drive those global players bring is huge. And for example, we looked a lot into product standards for plastic recyclers, tracing plastic recycling through the system with some new technologies and some new outputs. And most of these product standards are voluntary. There are voluntary agreements and are also being pursued by big standard organizations like ISO and others to really provide a global or at least an international system, there might be then national variations to adapt it to the circumstances and within the environmental frameworks those countries have. But I think there's a, a really general agreement that sustainability is important, that you need to collaborate to achieve something, that circular economy is the way to go. And I think there's a couple of big themes like that that are really have reached general agreement and are really being pursued worldwide i think that has made a real difference do you see the same in in the regulations because i think that's probably the other part and how much do we still need to push on regulations and how much can we rely on on voluntary agreement is probably a really interesting area to to look at yeah, I think I think it I think we will always need regulation because there'll always be the people who are more engaged and more committed to it than others. I, I know when producer responsibility first came on the horizon, it was kind of welcomed and adopted by a lot of people, but an awful lot of in terms of the time free riders, and that's probably still the case for a small proportion now. So I think there'll always be a, a role for regulation and obviously environmental protection is the absolute you know, protection of human health always needs to happen. So 
that's always a thing. I think that the really interesting thing for me is how it might change the waste sector. And you touched on it earlier on, Debbie, when you said that, you know, you can see people getting more involved in the waste sector. And I, and I really feel we're on the cusp of some big changes. I mean, historically, we've always had household waste in particular, local authorities letting large collection contracts and treatment and sorting capacity focused on bulk mixed recycling waste streams. And now you're looking at people wanting really high quality material. And I, you know, I do wonder sometimes going forward whether we're going to have some disruptors coming into that with people who want that quality material, the manufacturers actually trying to get that directly. So kind of almost cutting out the middleman or avoiding these bulk sorting processes to try and access those really high quality resource streams. And I think we're already seeing more tie ups and closely relationships between manufacturers and the waste sector as they try to build that resource security. So not in terms of scarcity, but in terms of securing the quality and material they need. And I think that's going to continue. So I think that's a big change I can see on the horizon. And that's probably kind of like what we touched on, Debbie, in our first podcast, where I called it waste, you so call it uh, material or resource. And I think we might now be at the cusp where actually people recognise it as a resource. Yeah, I agree, Claudia. I think, you know, there's a common theme, which is how things are evolving. Claudia and I mentioned this in our first podcast, and we were looking at, as you say, the language differences over the last few years. And I think it is that demand that's changing that. We now have commitments from organisations, and actually in some policy frameworks, we have the requirement to incorporate recycled content into things and, and eco-design, design for repairability, design for remanufacture. And that is actually driving the circular thinking in business. It's making them consider the way in which products and and packaging and and items are being manufactured and what the materials are that they're using for that, but also they're considering it right the way through the life cycle stages. So how will that be maintained at its highest possible value through the consumption stage? And therefore, as a result of, of all of that, trying to understand the waste sector is fundamental to understanding where your feedstock is going to come from for your raw material if you need recycled content in it. So I'm really excited by this opportunity that we've started to get to grips with, where we understand that this is a materials and resource value chain rather than a waste and something to be dealt with at all. And I look forward to some really interesting conversations with some of our other guest speakers who I think will touch on that as well going forward. So I think we have to call this conversation uh, to a stop at the moment, which is very sad because I'm sure we have lots more we could ask you, Simone. But thank you very much for your time. So I think it's been a really interesting exploration across the value chain, actually, of waste and looking at all of the different ways in which you've taken on board learnings from different parts of your career development stages and integrated that as an expert witness and as an expert consultant. So thank you for sharing your experiences with us. We really enjoyed hearing from you. No problem. Yes, and I also hope our listeners have found it really interesting. And it would be great to get any any comments and questions about what you've heard today. So please feel free to contact us either via the Anthesis Group website or email us or reach out on, on LinkedIn. We hope you'll join us again because our next episode, we're going to be joined by another Anthesis guest, Susan Harris. She's going to discuss her experience in circular economy and the role that women in resource efficiency and particularly construction and the apparel sectors, quite different sectors. And she's going to talk about the processes for waste treatment, design for circularity and touch a little bit on the plastics debate. So we hope you'll be able to join us for that conversation. But until then, thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.